0: This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is May 9th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always joined by the presidential Simon Belanger. Good sir, like... Your back is going to hurt after this episode (laughs) because I just got back from Omaha. And I'm going to carry the next episode, but you are carrying me on your back for this entire episode. So, like, I'm just I'm just along for the ride. I'm like a jetpack yeah, for this episode. figuratively,
1: so my back will be fine. It's actually trending quite well, so, uh, yeah. Oh <laughs> yeah, your back's getting, getting much better, good, okay, so good. I'll be good, uh, you know, for when I go in Toronto uh, for the, the meetup, which we're finalizing. So, we'll have some uh, more information yes.
0: soon, so stay tuned for those who are interested. So that is, what's the date July 7th. July 7th. Mark it in your calendars. Tickets will go extremely fast. So July 7th, that evening, that's a Friday evening. Put it in your calendars now, and we'll have final details for you soon. Um, So Simon, the episode that's going to come out next Monday, I'm going to do a recap of the Berkshire Hathaway weekend Everything I learned, the people I met, what I did, who I hung out with. Um, but I guess I can do like maybe just a quick synopsis now. Like, um, yeah, yeah, go for does it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I do this uh, but... Warren
1: Buffett or Charlie Munger impression for
0: the podcast as a preview, <laughs> <laughs> dude? They they crushed it. Okay, because my f- I, I'm gonna have. I think I have written like nine takeaways from everything they said and my favorite quotes of the weekend that I'm going to, we're going to record and that's going to come out Monday. But my first very quick thought was, you know, the two of them, they sit down, they they wheel out Charlie in the wheelchair and, and Buffett waddles over to his chair and sits down and he was pumped. Like he, you know, he, He's got the whole crowd of a standing ovation. And he's like, I'm so glad you guys are here. Me and Charlie love it. Like, this is the, this is awesome. And I was like, Warren got a good sleep because last year he was not nearly as sharp. And of course, I mean, he's, he's in his nineties, you know, day to day, he can be off or on. Last year, it felt like for the first year, he was a little off. Uh, it took a while for him to formulate some opinions and thoughts and answer questions. But oh man, on Saturday, he got a good rest because he was on and uh, I was blown away, honestly. He, he crushed it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I watch about an hour and a half, I would say. Of the uh, Q and A, because I find that's the best thing is just a Q and A. Because you know them going through the yeah. results is just like okay, like I can read financial statements too. Like I mean, <laughs> yeah. they do a good yeah. job, but I yeah. think just the questions and some of them were pretty, you know, hard hitting. I know they talked about some of the issues they had with the railways they own and things like that. So yep. um, I do like that they don't shy away from these harder questions. And was it the first year that they? um didn't have Wells Fargo so they didn't have to answer any questions on that.
0: yeah the the only bank they've held into this uh, into this uh 13f is yeah, bank of america yeah i was
1: going to say B, yeah okay yeah
0: mm-hmm. and there was lots of questions on banks of yeah. course yeah. um with you know the the big bank some some fairly large us banks failing over the past months and they certainly had many questions fielded on that. And I have tons of just gems of quotes from the two of them that I'm going to talk about next episode. So, so stay tuned for that. But my God, I mean, it's, it's now 1130 AM and they've been up there answering questions since 9 AM. Cause they do this, like they did this movie and then, then they come on and it's like 11.30. I've now gone out into the concourse to many times. So I've met two friends uh, and two investors that I know for a quick break and a coffee out on the concourse. I've gone for two coffee breaks. I've went to the bathroom like three times. You know, I, I, I've been like out of my seat and like moving around and, you know, this kind of thing. Use the Use the restroom. And these guys haven't moved an inch and they are just folks. I'm like... Dude, uh, don't like ger- more geriatric folks like need to use the bathroom more frequently than me in my late 20s? It's called adult diapers, Brayden. That's what it
1: is. I'm <laughs> not saying been are. I just if anyone's I don't want anyone to get offended <laughs> here, but yeah.
0: No, like honestly, I, I mean, just wildly impressive and the, the amount of focus. And, and at the end of the day, you can tell like they just love doing this, right? Like. They they love this day. They love this event. They love uh, the whole the whole presentation of it, and you can't knock off the just capitalistic energy of of Buffett because he comes in after lunch and the Q and A rev- resumes, and he goes out in the out in the main uh, exhibit halls where they have all the Berkshire Hathaway brands. He goes, the people are telling me we're having a record year of sales. So like, make sure you go back out there and buy more shit. (laughs) Like it was just incredible. Like you eat, you can't shake that off him. He just loves making money, and uh, that that'll never change.
1: No, no, exactly. So, see, you know, join, <laughs> listen to the podcast uh, that comes out coming out next Monday, and we'll uh, we'll go over that. And like I said, I did listen to a decent chunk of it, so I'll uh, be able to aspirate in some questions as well during it. But he'll be the one leading it and give us
0: giving us his experience. I told you, I'm like, we're going to have to ham and egg the next two episodes. And you're like, ham and what? Yeah, it's, not, it's not a French expression. Yeah,
1: uh, I kind of knew what you meant by how you said it, but yeah. uh, I never heard that
0: before. Yeah. All right, let's get into uh, yeah. the part where you carry me this episode. Uh he, big pop on uh, this stock here. What do we got first? Yeah,
1: yeah. So I'll do a kind of hybrid between earnings, news, and also I inserted some concept in there as well. But it'll be mostly earnings and news So because there's a lot of stuff going on. Uh, So Shopify, uh, they came out with their earnings. The market clearly liked it because uh, it was up 20% at some point. Uh, Some big news came out first. They're selling their logistic business or assets to Flexport. Flexport is an American company that focuses on supply chain management and logistics. The deal gives Shopify 13% interest in Flexport on top of its existing equity interest, and Flexport will become the official logistics partner for Shopify. On top of that, which I think the market liked, unfortunately for the people impacted, but they will be reducing their workforce by 20%. Um, clearly the market right now is rewarding businesses that are looking at efficiency, uh, but you know, it, it sucks for those impacted, but probably needed to be done. Now, for the earnings, revenues increased 25% to 1.5 billion. GMV increased 15% to 50 billion. Uh, monthly recurring revenue, MRR increased 10% to 116 million. And they said that gains were driven by more merchant merchants converting trials to standard subscriptions. Um, One of the lackluster lines was that gross margins dropped 450 basis points to 47.5%. And those not sure what basis points are, it's just basically like four, you reduce by 4.5%, that number. Earnings per share was uh, five, five cents per share versus a loss of a dollar 17 last year and free cash flow was 86 million compared to negative 41 million last year during the same quarter in terms of outlook they said that their revenues would grow at a similar rate uh, in q2 versus uh, q1 that they just saw gross margins to be similar to the first quarter and operating expenses to decrease in the mid single digit as a percentage so that's some really you know there's overall quite good and the stock has been a bit of on a tear since they came out with those earnings so I know you know we both own shares full disclosure what are your thoughts on those earnings
0: at first I was like okay it looks like they're taking the margin profile seriously, uh, for what feels like the first time. But what did the stock jump like 28% that morning? Like,
1: yeah, something like that. It was crazy. And the next day was still up pretty big, too.
0: It yeah. is up 36% since May 3rd. So that's last Wednesday. Um, when you have highly valued growth stocks with, Huge expectations. Things have to go right for a long time, or you face major drawdowns, like the stock has. And then to the to the upside as well, you have gigantic overreactions as well. Now, I I think you know the price action on this stock is just a giant collection of overreactions on uh, both the upside and the downside. It, it, this feels like a bit of a rich swing up from here, just based on that. I think they still have a lot to prove. On the margin profile, if if you just plot out the margins, it's it's pretty grim. And uh, clearly, um, you know, my my fellow Canadians and around the world that are are affected by this layoff, I'm I'm really sorry to hear that, and uh, we definitely we definitely don't want to encourage that. But this business needs to to be successful long term, be a little bit more. Prudent with capital allocation and expense management on the operation side. So a lot of this kind of makes sense. The diverger, uh to Flexport of the logistics business, I think, kind of makes sense. They've had some pressure on this overall, and and, and then it, it, you just kind of look and you're like, the logistics business is really really hard, and uh, you know. It's it's not just them that have been dragged for for spending a lot of money in this category. I mean, look no further than the, the trillion dollar Amazon as well.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think it shows that you know a company like Amazon or Walmart. Um, it shows how. Um, imp- I would say how strong of a mode they have to some extent with that logistic business. Clearly, you know, you can have a business and have a third party like a FedEx, like TFI or, you know, UPS do handle most of your logistics, but it's not as seamless as having it in-house like Amazon does or I think Walmart to some extent and, you know, you know, I've been saying that I own Amazon for a while, but I think that will become a stronger and stronger moat. Yes, it might be a lower margin business, but I think as time goes by, it'll be harder and harder for competitors to compete with just that logistic infrastructure that they've taken, what, like at this point, like decades to build, right?
0: Yeah, Amazon has, uh, I think on their latest 10K and we track it year by year on Stratosphere, for like 650 million Square feet, if you include leased and owned warehousing facilities. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's why you look at one. the CapEx line item and it's just like nosebleed, mind numbingly high.
1: But at some point you know i think they'll be able to turn to levies and really leverage that it's probably going to take some time so um you know if you've bought amazon the last couple of years you're probably down on it but i still think it's uh it's a good company longer term now moving on to more macro stuff i'm kind of mixing it up here uh, there's going to be some more earnings and definitely some canadian content So the Fed increased rates by 25 basis points. So they hide their benchmark to 5% to 5.25%. So it's always a range when it comes to the Fed. It was widely expected by the markets. And the markets were really watching what Mr. Powell, Jerome was going to say afterwards during the press conference. Um, It's actually quite fascinating if you're fascinated by psychology in general just to see, just looking at how the S&P 500 reacts. During the press conference. So first you look at how it reacts with the release and then during the press conference, um, it's, it's crazy. It's like a roller coaster. Um, you can literally see if he says something that people will pick up on, whether there's a big impact on the S and P 500. So I encourage anyone who has, you know, time the next time it does come out, uh, to just listen and look in concert with what's happening. It's always pretty interesting, I find. Now, he started by saying that the U.S. banking system was strong and resilient. I wonder why he said that. Uh, but obviously, uh, it's on the mind of a lot of people. And he did get a lot of questions from reporter regarding the uh, U.S. banking system. I thought that was pretty funny because despite First Republic failing just a few days before and some other regional banks struggling um to s- i mean what is he gonna say obviously but it's kind of funny saying that after all these events just happen and they also mentioned he mentioned that the economy is showing signs of slowing down. It's most likely going to slow down further because of tighter credit conditions created by the rate hikes, but also the stress happening in the banking sector. So they are seeing lenders kind of tighten their criteria uh, so what they're saying is because of that they're going to take a wait and see approach going forward just rely on the data they also he highlighted during the press conference that they actually changed some of the wording in their release to say that now they were no longer like anticipating future rate hikes to uh, they will look at the data and decide whether it warrants future rate hikes or not. So that sounds a lot like what the Bank of Canada has been doing uh, now for a couple of meetings. So nothing really new, I would say. It's kind of what the market expected. Um, It'll be really interesting what happens, especially in the banking sector and how that may affect some of
0: the rate decisions going forward from the Fed. With the rapid change in rates that we've seen and the mismatch on balance sheets and duration I, there was i had a lot of interesting discussions with people who are much smarter than me times 10 on on this on this topic because they're bankers and their their job is to manage yeah. risk and one thing that that charlie said on saturday that actually re- really resonated with me is well as an engineer i'm very biased towards this but he said bankers should be more like engineers managing risk, not trying to get rich. And so I I thought that was really profound and, and just, I mean, I can obviously relate as being an engineer, like that's, that's kind of your job is like managing critical infrastructure. And then Buffett also said, um, um, he said it can banking can and should have new inventions but it has to have old values uh, around managing risk, and it's it's so true. And I know this is tangentially related to your topic on on the the Fed hike, but that's that's where my brain went right away.
1: Yeah, no, exactly, and I think that's right. And um, I've said it before. At the end of the day, regulation can only do so much. Um, you know, management has to be accountable as well. And I've said it before where, you know, they're going to pass regulation to try and mitigate this kind of issue in the future. But they're not going to be forward looking and they're not going to look at other potential uh, risk management practices that might not be good enough. And then, you know, hopefully bank managers actually do their job correctly and do manage those risks that may not be addressed in new regulation. Now, moving on, speaking of regional banks, so TD and First Horizon mutually agreed to terminate their merger agreement. Um, First Horizon is a regional bank, so it is kind of uh, telling that uh, they are terminating this. TD has to pay a termination fee of $200 million to First Horizon. Now, TD's not been getting the best press lately. (laughs) <laughs> no and actually Dan uh from the our real the Canadian real estate investor we were texting just before we started recording sent me an article about um why the regulators were probably not going to approve this deal because originally I thought you know what it's weird why would regulators not want to approve this deal when clearly regional banks as a whole, have been you know struggling to say the least. I think that's probably it. and are
0: for sale and
1: are for sale. And the U.S. government clearly, you know, in my view, should be open to a large, well-capitalized bank looking to buy a regional bank and making it more s- stable for the system yeah. in general. Well. It turns out that, you know, I thought it was total B as a regulatory thing because, you know, they offered $13.4 billion to buy First Horizon in February of 2022. And now it has a market cap of around $6 billion. So clearly paying a $200 million fee is probably not a bad idea. However, um, they said that. One of the reasons, well, according to Wall Street Journal article, who interviewed people familiar with the situation, is that U.S. regulators were reluctant to give TD a clean bill of health on its anti-money anti-money laundering policies be- related to some suspicious customer transaction. Oh, so, yeah. So this is not uh, this is definitely not a good look. And now it makes a bit more sense in terms of not thinking they would get the regulatory approval granted probably td wasn't you know was okay with not getting the deal through but if yeah. it, this is true um this is not good for td because it's probably going to put them in the crosshair of regulators whether it's in canada the us or i know they have some operations in europe too um going forward and that usually can impact the bottom line so it's something just to keep an eye on uh this just came out i think it was yesterday uh the article for the wall street journal so to be continued but uh that would make a lot of sense in terms of the regulatory approval
0: not being there yeah i I was just learning about it, yeah, an hour ago too, like (laughs) in the same time you did in in that text group chat that we have. Um, Yeah, the $200 million breakup fee, uh, it stings, but I'm sure they're like, oof, (laughs) $13.4 billion for a $6 billion asset, it's probably not the best uh, use of capital. So I'm sure they're happy, not happy, that's probably not the right choice of words, happy to pay $200 million in a breakup fee. But um, what, what a what a difference, you know, a year can make because that offer was February of 2022.
1: No. Yeah, exactly. A year. And I mean, a year and what, 500 basis months, points yeah. of uh, yeah, interest yeah, exactly. rate hikes later, like a lot of things change. Like, I mean, it's crazy how quickly things change in, in the span of a year and change when you kind of take a moment and look back of. You know, people may think like how the hell would why would TD offer that much? I mean, it was a completely different environment. Silicon Valley Bank was what three hundred dollars a share or something yep. like that at the time. So yeah, things have changed quickly over a year.
0: Yeah, you know, you asked someone you told you told someone that in February twenty twenty two you're gonna you're gonna short Silicon Valley Bank to zero and they would say, uh you sir are 100 percent on crack look at the deposit growth um no exactly that's that's, that's yeah. all i have to add
1: <laughs> no that's it uh, now we'll move on to some news from air canada so they updated their guidance and um i'm also going to go over some useful airline specific metrics for people who want to invest in uh, airline stocks not something i do i know you don't because i know you have in the past but I mean, airlines are notoriously hard to predict. A lot has to do with demand, but also their operating costs are variable for the most part. So it's very, you know, you do have some good airlines, but it's not a, it's a business that will typically be cyclical. Um, so get back at Air Canada. Their stock increased more than 10% last Friday when it updated its guidance. It said it was raising its guidance because of stronger Stronger than anticipated demand and lower than expected fuel costs. It slightly reduced its ASM outlook, which I will I explain what ASM is, but raise its adjusted EBITDA guidance by 36% for the year compared to their previous guidance issued on February 17th. So, just a couple months later, let's say two months and a half, and Uh, pretty big difference on the guidance they also said that they are now comparing their adjusted uh, CASM which I will also explain what it is to 2022 instead of 2019. So instead of looking to 2019 results, now they're going back to 2022. They think it's a better measure of the current environment. And I probably agree at this point. I think in 2022, 2021, uh, I was much easier to go back to 2019 because those were more normal times. But I think last year things got back to a bit more normal. And now it makes a bit more sense to, um, to compare that. So now talking about Uh, some of the concepts or some of the metrics that are useful for airlines. I'll go over four of them, two that I mentioned already. So ASM capacity. So ASM stands for available seat mile, which is a widely used metric in the airline industry. So you calculate this by multiplying the number of miles by the number of available seat for sale. It's simply a way to measure the amount of seats that are available for sale or generate revenue. That's because not all seats generate revenues for airlines for example you could have a crew that's on a flight and not working because they need to commute to get to another flight so those would be seats that are not part of the asm that are not generating revenue any comment on that braden
0: no I just that you can build some really beautiful comps with this metric like for like across airline industries. Like if you go on Stratosphere and use the, the Cape, the company KPIs tool, you can use available seat miles and compare air Canada versus Delta versus American airlines versus, you know, some of the other public names. Yeah. uh, American Airlines stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's super good to, it's super nice to see this metric, right. Which is just like how, what is their capacity to move, move people in terms of like, the miles that they're flying and seats that are on the plane. Yeah, exactly. And move like paying
1: passenger. Exactly. So Now, CASM is very similar to ASM that I just went over. So it stands for cost per available seat mile, which is another widely used metric. Uh, CASM is operating cost divided by ASM. So in other words, it's a way to measure how efficient an airline is. So the lower the number, the better here. Now, our ASM is stands for Revenue Per Available Seat Mile. So you calculate it by dividing the operating income by ASM. So in other words, the higher the metric, the better it is. So it's almost like the opposite, I would say, of CASM. It's like uh, looking at real estate and... Uh, um, so you have vacancy rates versus occupancy rates so they're kind of they're the same thing they're just the opposite so as long as you understand um you know you can use those numbers that way now the last one is rpm so rpm stands for revenue per passenger mile So this measures the number of miles traveled by paying customers. So you simply multiply the number of paying passenger by the distance. So for example, if you have 100 passengers traveling 250 miles, then it has generated 25,000 RPM. So when you look at the, oftentimes it will be in the supplementary data, this information, but you'll see all of these metrics like Braden said. If you go on Stratosphere or you look at the financial statements, you will see these metrics over and over for airlines so um, it doesn't have to be overwhelming just you know I went over them these are just good metrics and like Braden said it's really important just to compare them with other similar airlines and I will emphasize similar airlines because if you have very regional carriers I mean don't compare regional carrier with Air Canada will make no sense like it will look very different
0: yeah good point These are really good kind of key performance indicators that, that the industry provides. So you can actually do some decent like for like comps on the names and, and they're, they're telling metrics too, as well. Like, especially when you look at like CASM, it's like, how, that's the cost per available seat mile. So like, how efficient are they being, um, for this specific case? Is there one that documents kind of, Almost like the equivalent of occupancy rates, like seats, seats filled. Um, Because, you know, if you look at like a a, if you're looking at a REIT, like the thing that you care about so much is occupancy rates, like how much of their portfolio, you know, 93 percent occupied. So the seven percent of the of the suites are empty. I would love to know a metric like that for for airlines if they disclose it. I'm not sure.
1: I, I would think there probably is, but I only took these four because I know they're widely used. But there's definitely more. So I think there's probably around 10 of them that are pretty common for airlines. I wouldn't be surprised if there is um, there is one. Yeah,
0: because yeah, they have it like per available seat mile. But so I want to know, like, I guess there's passenger mile. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. revenue per passenger mile that helps. It's still not like an occupancy, though. You know, no, like you it's can come not. like kind of, you can kind of derive a couple things to to understand the efficiency. But
1: no, no, I, I I'm sure like there probably is to be honest. Like, there's a yeah. lot of airline, and it, I think it's important to to specify passenger airline. Like, don't take cargo jet and apply these metrics; it will not work. So, um, these are really for paying passenger, not cargo airline. Yeah, good point. Let's move on to the yeah. the giant. The giant, the almost $3 trillion company, if you can believe it. I think it's like <laughs> 2.8. It's, it's freaking crazy. Um, it so Apple, crazy. Uh, for those that weren't aware, and so they released Q2 earnings. Um, if you the, add the
0: cash pile, it's very close to $3 trillion. <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, the market liked, the earnings, although I'm more kind of, you know, that was okay, but the stock was still up 5% after the release. So revenues were down 3% to 95 billion. Um, the bright spots here is services revenues hit a record high, um, increased 5% to 21 billion. iPhone sales were up 1.5% to 51 billion. And that's one of the big reasons, right here, I think, is because people were predicting that iPhone sales would either be sl- uh, flat or or potentially go down so just the fact that they're up and it's by far their biggest segment um, it's encouraging now the not so great as Mac and iPad sales were down for the quarter while wearables and home accessories were essentially flat just very slightly down Operating income was down a bit more than five percent, meaning that margins did definitely take a hit. Um, net income was down three percent to twenty-four billion, while EPS was flat at a dollar That's because Apple is notorious at buying, uh, doing some share buybacks, which I'm sure uh, Warren Buffett probably alluded to
0: during the the meeting. He's a big fan of that. Um, he had uh, he actually had a nice little I don't know I guess nice I don't know if that's a word but he had a kind of entire segment on their love affair with Apple oh, yeah. and reasons X, Y, Z why <laughs> why it's such a great business. Um, and uh, I'll touch on that after maybe. Yeah, yeah no, I, I
1: mean, I agree. It's a great business. And um, uh, look, they're buying back shares at a crazy rate. And I saw a tweet. I'm just going based on memory here. I think... Apple has done something like seven or eight hundred billion, something like that in share buybacks, which is more than the market cap of, I think, like five hundred and ninety S&P 500 like companies, something ridiculous (laughs) like that. Like, I'm sure I'm off a little bit. I'm just going on memory. But that's how
0: staggering the amount of buybacks they've done. It it is staggering. And like on that same note, the. Like other than the other than NVIDIA, maybe like if you haven't owned Apple and Microsoft year to date, you've just underperformed the index. Like just given the weight of them and the return of them at their size, like (laughs) with a few rare circumstances, someone who has 15 stocks or more with maybe the exception of NVIDIA in there, like you've probably underperformed the market.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think I mean it's definitely one of those stock, and uh, they also launch. I don't know if you knew that a savings account. I think it's hosted by Goldman Sachs. So now they're definitely getting into the fintech, kind of fintech. Exactly. I think they're probably bypassing having a banking uh, license by kind of out make you know having that partnership with Goldman Sachs. But
0: it's pretty easy to make partnerships when you're. Apple.
1: When you're that big, exactly. So they generated fifty six billion in free cash flow for the first six months of the year. That's actually down twenty percent versus last year. Uh, they authorized an additional ninety billion in share repurchases. Now, just a little asterisk here. Um, Apple. I think they'll probably use it, but um, when companies authorize something, it doesn't mean that they have to. And I think that's really important for people to, um, those are maybe new to investing, just make sure that it's not a promise of doing it, it's just an authorization that they can do it. Um, I think that's really important. They raised the dividend by a whopping 4% to uh, 24 cents a share. Um, And at first, glance, I think, I mean, I think it was pretty good overall. I mean, not great, but the market clearly liked it. I think stock buyback authorization had something to do with that. The results were better than expected, like I mentioned, for iPhones. And I just think Apple is like the ultimate blue chip safe stock for most people. I think that's just what it is. I think a lot of people, it's like, you know what? Just put money in Apple. Like, you know, it's going to be here in 5, 10, 15 years. And I think... I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think it now has become the ultimate kind of
0: safe in air quote, nothing safe, but um, yeah. I think the ultimate flight to safety is Microsoft, personally. But but again, we're splitting hairs here. They're they're the two biggest companies on the planet. Yeah. yeah. And um that that's just the way I see it. But you're right. I mean the entrenchedness that this business has was so undervalued not so long ago because if you looked if you just looked backwards at the previous 10 years you found a pit of dead bodies in the hardware space like that's why in what like 2014 2013, you could buy apple for like 12 times earnings uh yeah, yeah. 12 times gap earnings and a lot of people had insight to that thinking, oh man, like the iPhone's different. But I mean, that's, it's hard to say that when you look back and just find the, the likes of, of RIM, uh, <laughs> hiding in the tar pit, um, hardware was a tough place to be. And so I think if you look now, the question that was thrown around this weekend a bunch was for a two car, f- you, you guys have two cars, right? One. Or just one, just one car. Okay. We're
1: probably going to buy a second with the baby going to daycare, but for now, uh, two. Okay. So, you guys are just yeah. one car. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, this is now, a perfect
0: one. question for you. This is a perfect question for you. The question is, you both of you and your wife, you guys get a second car or have to use a non iPhone phone you like you have to be out of the Apple ecosystem so the question for you is do you want a second car or be able to keep using your iPhones
1: I'd probably go with the second car for the convenience and I would learn I mean I learned having a MacBook Pro from PC so if I need to you know get out of the ecosystem and use an Android um I'd probably suck it up mostly for, for my little lady. So yeah, (laughs) I I do it for her. So
0: fair enough. I'm not saying one answer is the right. But it's not an easy,
1: easy one. Yeah. That's
0: the, that's the point. Is that like no other consumer product, that question is hard, right? Like no other consumer product, that question is difficult to answer. It's, it's, oh, of course, second car. Um, and so that's why it's so powerful. and so sticky. And uh, that got brought up again a bunch last weekend. And so I think that that's why it was just so undervalued is the staying power was 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 grossly misstated and including yeah. by me.
1: Well, there was also, wasn't it like 2017, if I remember correctly, the stock took a dip when they said they would stop uh, saying how many units of iPhones they sold and just say the revenue. Um, I think that was around that time, if I remember correctly, where, yeah, people were kind of down on the stock. They were saying that, you know, that Apple was doing it because the iPhone sales were declining and it was just a way for them to kind of hide it. And then now no
0: one bats an eye. They just switched it to iPhone revenue and the installed user base yeah, instead of, like, exactly. number of devices yeah. sold. Um, but, I mean, they're still breaking out the revenue, and it goes up and to the right yeah. <laughs> consistently. Actually, no, I, no, not that consistently. It's hardware, but, you know, the, so December, so the December quarter is monster, as yeah. you can imagine.
1: I mean, honestly, even if it stays relatively flatter, like, increases low single-digit, for years to come, as long as the services kind of keep increasing and the margins are fantastic there, it doesn't really matter. As long as they just keep getting more people in the ecosystem, that's what really counts for them.
0: That's right. Like I'm, I'm going to share this. This You can see on my screen here. This is the iPhone user installed base. And so I guess to them, they thought this is a better story than the number of iPhones sold in that time period because these are all the people in the ecosystem who are spending money on the App Store, consumed by our services and, and living inside of Apple. And um
1: and paying that Apple it,
0: tax. Paying that <laughs> Apple tax. I think it describes a better story, obviously more bullish for the company, but pretty fair to be honest. Like the yeah. way I see it. No, exactly. And uh, now, so we'll go
1: on to the last names. I wanted to finish with a Canadian name. One stock that, uh, or yeah, a company that we talk quite a bit. And uh, it's Aritzia. They released their Q4 in uh, full year earnings. And it was a rough one for Aritzia. It was down 20% after the earnings came out. I'll break down why. There's a couple of reasons here. So first of all, the good uh, net revenues were up 43.5% to six. 638 million for the quarter for the year it was up 47 to 2.2 billion i mean that's essentially uh, for context here that's um, about a quarter of what lululemon does and i know like i compare lululemon a lot but it is a fashion play and uh, ritzia is also expanding to the u.s i know there's differences i know it's more focused what's well, focused on women clothing but i think it's a good comparator to what you know, hopefully aritzia will achieve. Um, you know, looking at Lululemon, US revenue was up 55.7% to 337 million, and now their US revenue is actually a couple percent higher than Canada. So it's shifted. It used to be the opposite, where Canada and was with less stores. Yeah, exactly. So th- that's definitely interesting. Uh, what the not so good is coming up so gross profit margins were down 240 basis point to 38 percent lululemon also saw their gross profit margin i think down in the same um around the same amount, but their gross margins were way higher to begin with. So there is a big difference there. Operating margins were down 270 basis point to 13%. Net income decreased 9.1% to 37.3 million. And this is for the quarter, just because I feel like it's a bit more appropriate where we've talked about them in previous quarters before. Earnings per share was up 10% for the quarter. Uh, Free cash flow negative of 48 million versus free cash flow positive of 273 million for last year. And this is for the full year. That's usually how they provide free cash flow. Um, I could have reverse engineered it, but uh, figured I'd provide the full year number here. They opened eight new boutiques during the quarter and relocated five. Inventory levels are quite high. And that's something I mentioned for Lululemon when we went over their last quarter. And that's something people should look, keep a close eye on for either businesses. I own Lululemon, but whether you own Aritzia or Lulu, I think that's something you have to keep an eye on. So to give people context here. I went back to all their quarters last year. So Q1, they had 298 million in inventory Q2, 455 million Q3, 508 million and Q4, 467 million, which is down 8% from that previous quarter. Um, their overall inventory turnover, which is a metric, uh, that you can use is just the invent, the average inventory level. And you just divide that by the cost of goods sold. So that's just shy of three, which is not bad. It's actually a bit better than Lululemon on that metric. Uh, but it's something to keep an eye on because it's a big risk for a retailer to just over purchase and then they're stuck discounting things and that's when the margins take a hit and the other reason why the stock was down was because the guidance was definitely light for a stock that's kind of seen as a growth stock um they are guiding for an increase of between 10 and 14 percent in revenues for the year and if you compare that to lululemon which is much bigger they are guiding for 15 percent so you know the growth is definitely slowing down i think that's why it took a big hit and they also said that gross margins will decrease another 200 basis points this year but they should improve longer term um Oh, and they will be opening eight new boutiques and uh, relocating four slash doing expansions so um i think you know it wasn't a great quarter um there's obviously the fashion risk here uh one of the other risks with aritzia is it's not the cheapest clothing either so you know the more we're seeing uh, you know this banking crisis credit tighten potentially the job market tighten as well though the the recent data isn't showing that but you know, they may see some headwinds going forward. So these are all things you have to think about and clearly gross margins, that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But the good news is it is trading relatively cheaply for a company growing sales, 10 to 14% at a P of 21. Um, Can't tell the price of free cash flow just because they were free cash flow negative. Yeah.
0: If there was an opportunity you buy this stock and you believe in the story, let me ring the bell for you. And, and I won't be joining you on that path because I don't invest in clothing companies. But if I was going to, it would be after this reaction to the earnings results because the top line is still exceptional and the direct to consumer numbers Are bonkers. Did you highlight that number? It was, it was, no, I didn't,
1: but they're, they're doing well. It was up like
0: to 40% of, of net revenues or something. Yeah, it was
1: good. In line Mm -hmm. with the
0: Lulu greatness, right? Yeah. Uh, Like I look at the results and think, okay, maybe there's a slight growth hangover and the guidance is, was light, which sure. But if there was a time to, to say, okay, the market's giving me an opportunity with this growth story after this earnings result feels like the, the opportunity. Because I do think the results were solid with a light guide. If you have a solid to, I would even say, good quarter, I think the results were good um, with a light guide and, and the market sells off the stock 25%. It's like, let that happen. You know, this is, this is your chance.
1: Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, I think, is just the uncertainty going forward. I think there's a lot, you know, they're guiding better longer term, but a lot of things could happen that can put a wrench in what they're saying will be improving longer term. So I think that's definitely one of the risks, personally. Um, and the reason why I prefer Lululemon, and that's because it's a more established brand. Like, there's no denying that. It's, you know, I know Aritzia has been a... You know, it's been there for a long period of time, granted, but it was definitely a smaller business that has been growing. But we've seen, unfortunately, not, you know, tons of fashion companies that get pretty mainstream that, you know, less than a decade down the line they're just fighting to survive so that's why that's where i think lululemon has kind of passed that it's kind of in a tier of almost in the nike type of tier where i think it's a very well established and i don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon Whereas I think Aritzia just still has, in my view, probably has to prove that over the next five years. I think the next five years. The array of outcomes is is way wider. And obviously, if they prove it and you invest in it now, you're going to be crushing your investment. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be, hey you know you were wrong and you know i'm not saying i'm you know one way or the other i'm just saying there's really a like you just said a wide range of outcomes with aritzia a lot more than other fashion plays that are more established
0: you have to believe in this story of course like like being the, the shareholder of any company what i'm saying is this is not investment advice but when i do see after earnings I try to ring some bell of opportunity to, to people who do believe in this story. And this is me doing that right now because the upside yeah, is a general, yeah. ridiculous. Uh, it's very high. Yeah. And I mean,
1: if you're going to be, I'm not saying this is a value play, but, you know, when you invest in companies where there's a decent amount of uncertainty if you do it correctly and your assessment is correct and the company ends up turning things around or I'm not, well, turning, or it, you know, what your projection ends up coming true to the upside. I mean, that's when you make some outsized returns on your investment, but the opposite is true as well, right? If you, you know, you project the upside and you think it's going to go that way and then it ends up going the other way and ends up bringing a pretty bad investment. So, um, that's
0: why investing is so great.
1: Uh, different people can have different takes on it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the episode, guys. Um, Simon, I got to show you this after, but if you have not already tried FinChat.io, do it because now you can actually screen the market by turning words into results. So you could be like, Simon, tell me 10... Fashion companies or 10 uh, retailers that have grown by X amount, are trading in North America, are profitable and have a price to free cash flow under 40. You could just be super rough and type that in via the English language or any language. Because uh, GPT is <laughs> by, very bilingual or multilingual. Uh, that'll actually break it out into a uh, into a table and answer the question that, that you're looking for. It takes a little bit longer, but it's pretty sweet. So go ahead and check that out at FinChat.io. That's being released tomorrow, but this is coming out Thursday. So go ahead to FinChat.io right now. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor
1: Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.